Today we talk about the ways in which all weddings are the same, how Rome became a divided empire on purpose. We tell the twisted path of reuniting it. We mention the most famous comedy sketch, perhaps of all time, and we learn the exact moment when Christian persecution ended. Well, sort of. All on the way to answering the question, what is that XP thing? Welcome to the Sky Pilot Podcast that explores questions of faith, spirituality, and religion. I'm Dan Matthews, and I don't have all the answers, but I do enjoy the questions. Welcome to the podcast where every question is an invitation into a spiritual quest, and you're invited along for the journey. I don't know how many weddings I've done over the last 30 years, but after a while, there are some familiar consistencies that tie them all together. Most of these similarities play out at the rehearsal. Rehearsals start late. All of them. Always. Someone always shows up 20 minutes late to the rehearsal. Second, most of them have some sort of family conflict, which is just below the surface, or sometimes not even below the surface. Also, if the wedding is for people under 30, then the bridesmaids and groomsmen are excited to a point where it takes a lot of work to get them just to pay attention and focus. Then, my experience doing weddings in the context of a church has been that amongst the wedding participants, there are two types of people. Those who are accustomed to being in the church and those who aren't. Those who are not accustomed to being in the church fall into kind of two distinct categories, at least from my observation. The first group is anxious. They either have decided they don't like churches and what they think they understand the church is all about, or they think all churches are going to try to convert them. These people kind of keep their distance, and when spoken to by the minister, by me, they kind of have a cautious air to them, or sometimes even are a little hostile in their responses. The other category of people who aren't accustomed to being in the church is totally different. These are often people who have no experience of being in a church. Sometimes they've never gone to a church in their entire life. Most often not because of some belief system, but simply instead because their family didn't and they've just kind of continued in that tradition. This group will very often ask my permission to take some pictures inside the church because they don't have any idea what the rules are or what the etiquette is. For them, being in the church is as strange as if they were suddenly dropped in an ancient Tibetan temple. As I said, they'll often take pictures of the stained glass and Christian symbols that surround them, and they will ask questions. Lots of questions. What's that thing hanging around your neck? It's called a stole. And what does it signify? It means that I'm ordained. What's the book they're reading from? That's the Bible. And as you can tell from this podcast, I love questions. And this group is particularly fun because, in general, when they ask a question, they're genuinely interested in the answer. And of all the things they ask about, by far the most commonly asked question is, what's that XP thing? 
The question is actually a pretty apt description of what they're looking at. It's an X and a P, not side by side, but kind of printed on top of each other. And asking about it makes total sense because it's not one of those visual things that you can kind of reason out or figure out for yourself if you don't already know what it is. Now, the only common usage of XP that I know of dates back 20 years to Microsoft Office XP or at the same time Windows XP, which are obviously unrelated to the church symbol. So most of the people I dealt with in those weddings weren't old enough to remember that, and then it's unrelated anyway. At its most basic level, it's just another symbol the church has for Christ. But to leave it there is to miss the really interesting tale that brought it about. So to know about this symbol, we're going to have to go back in history to the Roman Empire. Now, in the 3rd century, from about 235 to 284, there was a period in which the Roman Empire nearly collapsed. In those 50 years, there were no fewer than 26 people who laid claim to the title of emperor and held power in some form or another. Out of this chaotic period came a plan for stability. The Roman Empire would be divided into two regions, east and west. Each would be ruled by an emperor, assisted, in each case, by a chosen successor, a vice-emperor. This system is known as the Tetrarchy. Now, on February 27th, towards the end of this period of chaos, somewhere around the year 280, but we're not exactly sure of the precise year, a child was born who would shape the path of Christianity and the world from that point forward. His mother was named Helena, and it is known that she was of humble beginnings. She was not aristocracy by birth. She was, though, either the wife or concubine of a man named Constantius. Constantius, this infant's father, was a high-ranking commander in the Roman army who at some later point saw a political opportunity in a different marriage, so he left Helena behind to marry the stepdaughter of Maximian. Now, Maximian was, at the time, the emperor of the Western Roman Empire. As a quick aside, Helena turns out to have a very influential life of her own, and she's likely to have a podcast episode devoted to her at a future date, so stay tuned. Interestingly, this child I've spoken of was not raised as a part of the Western Empire where his father was, but was sent to be educated in the court of Diocletian, who was the emperor of the Eastern Empire. In 305, the emperor Maximinian stepped down from the throne, which promoted Constantius, the child's father, to the position of emperor. Now, upon his becoming emperor, he sent for his son, who was now an adult, to join him. But instead of joining him in court, he served at his father's side in a series of military conquests. Interestingly, the emperor of the East was none too keen on letting the son go, no doubt because he realized the influence he had over the Western Empire as long as he kept Constantius' son by his side but he did ultimately allow him to go, and so he joined his father for military conquests in Britain. 
Within a year, his father died and he was named emperor by the troops. This new young ruler was, of course, Constantine and was now the emperor of the Western Empire. Now, I did not withhold his name in this case to be a big reveal. I assume you could guess that Constantius's son was going to be Constantine. I did it because switching back and forth between the two overly similar names made this part of the story unnecessarily confusing. Unfortunately, we're going to get more of that in the future, and I can't really protect you from that. In the meantime, the emperor of the Eastern Empire had also stepped down, allowing his vice-emperor, Licinius, to assume the role as emperor of the East. Remember that Constantine's father became emperor when Maximinian stepped down. Well, Maximinian had a son who was ambitious enough to be frightening to his own father. Part of the reason for Maximinian marrying his stepdaughter to Constantine's father was to form a powerful alliance that would protect him from people who were ambitious and wished to do him harm, like his own son. So Constantine's father dies, and Constantine is named emperor by the troops he's with in Britain. But Maximinian's son, who's back in Rome, is named emperor by the people in Rome. And unfortunately for us, because it only adds to the confusion of this story, the son's name is Maxentius. So Maximinian's son is Maxentius. Maxentius knows he needs an ally in this power struggle if he's ultimately going to take on both Constantine in the West and Licinius in the East. So he teams up with, are you ready for this? Someone named Maximinus. I know, I am so sorry. All the characters' names feel like they're straight out of a comedy sketch by Abbott and Costello, who, if you don't recognize their names, did the comedy sketch about baseball called Who's On First. And if you've never heard it or listened to it, wow, are you in for a treat when you do. It's probably the most famous comedy sketch of all time, at least in the English language. So anyway, Maximinius and Maxentius have teamed up. As I said, this new alliance was an effort to overthrow the alliance of Constantine and Licinius. So Licinius took on Maximinius, which that sentence right there sounds like a rhyme from a Dr. Seuss book, while Constantine and his forces headed to Italy to confront Maxentius. Just before their battle at Milvan Bridge, something happened for Constantine. Exactly when and how it happened are not totally clear. But what is clear is that sometime before the battle, Constantine had a vision of some sort. One version is that the vision occurred in a dream. Another is that he saw the vision in the sky. Whichever way occurred, he received a message. In Latin, it is in hoc signo vincis, which means in this sign conquer. Now, I learned something recently. I've always heard that it was Latin he saw in the sky. But my research for this podcast, I've discovered the Latin I just cited is merely a translation of the Greek. I won't try to say the Greek, but what's important to know is that the Latin reads like a suggestion, while the original Greek reads much more like an imperative command. 
The sign he saw, in addition with this command, was two letters, one on top of each other. The two letters were an X and a P, at least what they look like to us from our alphabet. In truth, they are two Greek letters. The one that looks like an X is the letter chi, and the one that looks like a P is the Greek letter rho. And what's clear from this occurrence for Constantine is that he understood that God was giving him very clear instructions. The second part was clear to him was that this was the Christian God. For to him, he understood this to be a Christian symbol. When I was in active ministry in various churches, we always had this symbol on display in the church. It was built into the architecture, into the stained glass windows. It was stitched on the vestments we wore. So sometimes it was visible in multiple locations. The two letters are often displayed on some version of a shield. So back to the wedding participants asking questions in my opening story. It was these symbols that people who were looking around the church saw and sparked their asking me, what's this XP thing? In Greek, Christ is Christos. And the chi and the rho are the first two letters of that word. So these two Greek letters form a symbol that's understood in the church to represent Christ. And that is exactly how Constantine understood it as well. Now back to the coming battle. The logical military decision for Maxentius and his troops would be to stay within the fortifications of Rome. They had stockpiled food. They were ready. Just wait out the siege. This had worked for him in the past, and it was the plan now for dealing with Constantine and his approaching forces. But that changed when, according to Lord Maxentius, had spoken to an oracle for guidance and received this prophecy. On October 28th, an enemy of the Romans will perish. Maxentius understood this prophecy to be foretelling his own victory and Constantine's death, which may well be why he decided not to barricade his troops within the walls of Rome. Instead, he marched his troops out of town, crossed Milvan Bridge across the Tiber River, stretched his troops out with their backs along the river, and prepared for battle. It's believed that he partially destroyed the bridge so it couldn't be used by Constantine's troops should Maxentius's troops need to fall back into Rome. Now, obviously, if he's destroyed the bridge and they're on the other side of the river, his own troops had to have some way to escape. So he had a temporary floating pontoon bridge built for their exit, should it be needed. The pontoon bridge could be cut loose, sunk, or set fire to, to make sure that Constantine couldn't use it after they had used it to make their escape. Overnight, Constantine has all of his troops adorn their shields with this new symbol, the Cairo. The next day, as Constantine's troops marched into battle, they all had this new symbol on their shield and standards. Constantine's troops were the opening aggressors. And though they were far fewer in number, they were initially successful. And this initial success caused several things to happen. Or so it's conjectured by the military experts. 
Maxentius's troops had been stationed too close to the water, so when they didn't have initial success, the standard military plan would have been to fall back, regroup, and form a new plan. But they'd been deployed with their backs to the river, literally standing yards from its bank. There was nowhere for them to drop back and regroup, so chaos ensued. Some were driven into the water and drowned immediately. Others panicked and fled for the escape bridge, which was quickly overwhelmed and sunk. Maxentius himself tried to cross the bridge and was knocked into the water by his own panicked troops, and he drowned. After the battle was over, his body was recovered, beheaded, and his head was paraded through the streets of Rome by Constantine and his troops. Now, you can't help but hear that part of the story and feel like, okay, it was getting kind of dark, but this really doesn't seem like something Jesus would have been in favor of. I think that's a fair assessment. In 313, Constantine met with Licinius, remember the other emperor, in which they secured a treaty. This agreement, amongst other things, allowed for the freedom of religion. This is called the Edict of Milan. Now, the Edict of Milan is often miscited as making Christianity the state religion. It didn't, and that didn't happen for almost another 70 years. But it placed Christianity on equal footing with other faiths, and it allowed for some of the property that had been confiscated for them to be returned. Now, to finish the story, Licinius and Constantine had an uneasy truce for more than a decade, with the occasional skirmish between them. Eventually, they went to war, and Constantine defeated Licinius. But rather than killing him, he sent him into exile in Thessalonica. It wasn't long before Licinius was plotting, though, to make a comeback and overthrow Constantine, who ultimately heard about the plot and just went ahead and had Licinius executed. Constantine now reunited the Roman Empire, and under his watchful eye, Christianity grew exponentially. The Cairo, at its most superficial level, is a symbol representing the word Christ. But in truth, it is so much more than that. It's a Christian symbol that was created at a time when Christianity went from being outsiders and illegal to accepted and not persecuted. For history scholars everywhere, this is a moment in time that was a turning point for the church. In seminary, we would often talk about the two phases of the Christian church, the pre-Constantinian church and the post-Constantinian church. One was a church that was small, devoted, and always struggling to stay faithful. The post-Constantinian church was one of growing privilege, wealth, and power. And there are still debates to this day, wondering if Constantine brought wonderful growth for the Christian church or a church that had sold out to the powers of this world. Another thing that is worth remembering when we see the Cairo is that it can also remind us that the dichotomy still exists in our own time between the pre- and post-Constantinian church. In much of the Western culture, we enjoy the privilege that was brought about by Constantine. But it's worth remembering that there are Christians in many locations across the world 
who don't experience safety, much less wealth or power because of their faith. Many have to hide and are afraid of persecution. Some meet in secret and can't afford or can't take the risk of owning a Bible. So when we tell this story, it's worth remembering that there are Christians and people of almost every faith who suffer persecution and hardship simply because their faith doesn't align with the faith of the majority of the people in the land in which they live. I hope the goal eventually for all people of faith is not to struggle for power and hegemony under their own religion, but to create a world in which we are all safe to worship in the fashion of our own choice. That's all for today. On your spiritual journey, may you ask questions, seek answers, and boldly go wherever the quest takes you. I invite you to contact me through email or follow me on Twitter. Just remember that both are SkyPilot with three T's. That's S-K-Y-P-I-L-O-T-T-T. So it's skypilot at gmail.com and Twitter is at skypilot. Thanks for listening to SkyPilot FaithQuest. I invite you to send me a question or leave a review. And remember, the sign of a strong faith, solid religion, or healthy spiritual journey is not certainty, but that you keep asking questions. <laughs>